Hey, my name is K. Edwin Bryant, and I'm the author, academic, pastor, a corporate strategist with a passion to advocate for underrepresented communities. I help deprive spaces of white privilege and create pathways of quality and belonging for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Please do me the honor. Click the subscribe button right down there below the video. Clicking the subscribe button helps us keep this video series going. Listen, the purpose of today's podcast is to get to the heart of the matter. In order to have a strong DEI program in any organization, you've got to be fully engaged in the larger conversation that's impacting culture and community. It's happening widespread all across the country. Many people confuse the difference between two terms, equity and equality. They're often confused. To know the difference between equity and equality is a starting point for any authentic dialogue about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're excited. We're getting ready to come back to you. Keep listening. DEI Today is about to initiate a lot of knowledge transfer that will reframe how you lead your organization. I'm going to restate that last book. Uh, let's see what it is. All right, here we go. Keep listening. DEI Today is about to initiate a knowledge transfer that will reframe how you lead in your organization. Well, today, my friends, I am honored to have with us as a guest, a good friend, a mentor, Dr. Larry D. George. My God, it's such a pleasure to have you. He's the president, CEO of George Educational Consulting Services, professor of biblical literature and languages, author, publisher, entrepreneur. Listen, this guy can do anything. Uh, he's also a diversity, equity, and inclusion professional, not to mention an engineer. Welcome, Dr. George. I call you Larry. Thank you so much for being on our show today. That's fine. I love I love my first name. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a privilege being on your show, and I'm a, I'm a super fan of yours, and I'm looking forward to all the bright and, and challenging things that you can engage moving forward. So I know you're going to make a difference. And anything I could do to help with that, I'm more than willing to do so. I think the best help you can give is for us to jump right in and talk about these conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion. These kind of programs, Larry, are trending across America. I really believe that any discussion on diversity, equity, and inclusion, these kind of programs, whether in companies or organizations, they're important. But I have to admit to you that unless we have the critical dialogue about the wider understanding of diversity in our culture, we've got to grapple with those wider implications. There's much to be said, yes, about employee resource groups and various ways of enhancing the workplace. But I don't think that's possible until we deal with the larger problem. So let's take the risk today. Let's expose the dynamics that perhaps are working against meaningful DEI initiatives. Uh, allow me for a moment to maybe unpack it for our audience, uh, just to give a path forward. I would say dynamically, it's centered on the debated and explosive topic of racism in America. Diversity, equity, inclusion, they're all keys to building a supportive workplace. But I have to admit, diversity involves how everything about a person comes to bear in a shared space. So diversity and inclusion, that combination are necessary 
to be able to manage community and culture. However, I'm curious, Dr. George. Larry, I'm curious. You helped to build out a DEI platform within a community that I think that wasn't as charged racially as we're dealing with math. I could be wrong, but um, I think you're responsible for building out a DEI program at Bluffton University in Ohio. And if I'm correct, that happened before Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin. Uh, was there anything else happening at that time that would have led to how you built that out? So tell me, share with us, help the audience understand, what does DEI look like in a higher ed environment? And more importantly, what did you do to build it out? That's a wonderful question. Uh, I was hired at Buckley University with a dual position. On the one hand, I was hired as a uh, professor, associate professor of biblical literature and language. Okay. And on the other hand, I was also hired as uh, the engaging diversity uh, uh, director. And so my job, then it was a pathways grant that brought me in. And so my job was to help the community of Bluffton, uh, mostly on campus, but the Pretty much the community was made up of people from, uh, uh, well, the community was made up of people that worked at Bluffton. So it was for, for the community and also for the school. Now, being as a being that I was a part of uh, Bluffton University faculty, uh, uh, I was, if you will, I was welcomed in in one of the most strange ways ever possible. It was the first time that I actually walked out of an interview with tears in my eyes. They asked me, they told me that, that I was that there was no room for oh my the biblical studies department. And so I walked I actually had the job. They actually gave me the job uh, and told me uh, to attend a welcoming session at Blood University with my wife. And I, I felt something strange, so I told her not to come. I went and I met with the religious studies faculty. They actually told me that there was no room for me. I never heard that expression ever. Now, In fact, while I was teaching that, are you saying you were hired for diversity, equity, inclusion, but in the point of your onboarding, you felt as if there was no room for it? Yeah, within the religious studies faculty. Right. Which I was teaching biblical studies. And they said that if I teach any class, Within Bible, that I would be stepping on one of my colleagues' toes, <laughs> which I thought was kind of strange. Um, but I, I worked through that with the school, and they brought me on. But I was never invited to the religious studies uh, faculty meeting. Uh, in fact, uh, I stood up in a meeting of the larger faculty meeting and told the whole community that I was being discriminated against by the religious studies faculty. Because they never invited me to the meetings of which I was, I was, I should have been a part. They made it sound like it was because I was not Mennonite, but in fact, it was because you know I was black. Now, my job at Bluffton was to make sure that I kept on the front burner uh, all issues dealing with people of color. I was the only African American faculty there, and was one other faculty staff person was over at the. Black Cultural Center, I mean, the Cultural Center, which turned out to be just black. Because some schools tend to think that 
cultural centers are only for blacks, and not for, uh, for everyone. And so uh, she and I were the only two there, and we it was it was like a battle. So my job was like, for example, we had we had forums every week, sometimes two. And at the end of the forum, my job was to raise questions from that community, from the from, from minorities, from the margins. To, to make people aware that there are other issues that were not discussed in the presentation. And I was pretty much welcome with that. Um, but the tough part about it was, was getting faculty, staff, and students to engage in cultures other than their own. In fact, when I went to Bluffton, people would find this amusing. When I went to Bluffton University, I, I quickly discovered that they were not interested in diversity huh. of a different well, kind. Before you, before you drill they down were only on that. diversity of the same kind. Yeah. So, so before you get too deep in that, I, I just have to, um, I have to ask you a question. That seemed like to me the terms DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, in the context of higher ed that you experienced it, almost kind of created some division within smaller communities where you were brought in yes. to provide a conversation and it sounds like before employee resource groups were really widespread, you were doing that in context. But what it sounds like to me, and maybe you can explore this, help me understand if there are, and did you experience different types of diversity? Like, is there one segment, yes. versus equity, inclusion, or for all, or did you in some way feel like it was maybe separate but equal? Uh, I never I never felt that it was separate but equal. Okay. I felt that they defined diversity uh, what, what, by what I call tokens. Okay. You can only have a difference, but a, a very small number. Mm. And so they thought that they would diversify because they had two African Americans <laughs> among the faculty of over about 120. <laughs> and then there were no other staff persons that were black other than the person that was over the cultural center. And so that's one way to define diversity. The other way to define diversity is, is religious monolithicism. In other words, if I'm not a part of that religion, <clears throat> then uh, then I cannot become a part of the, their religion, which makes me an outsider, which means that they want only a diversity of the same kind, not a diversity in its truest form. Oh. And that's a power packed yeah. concept. Diversity of the same kind, not diversity exactly. of a different kind. I think you're onto something. Exactly. Because in order for diversity, equity, inclusion to be something that's valuable to everyone, it has to be something that grows across the board. Like you can take what's happening now in the world. Uh, corporations, I think, have pledged over, what, $50 billion towards racial equity improvement plans and uh, employee resource groups and all these types of buzzwords to create conversation after the onslaught of the violence toward black indigenous people of color, namely uh, what has happened with cases like George Floyd. And now you see uh, these social corporate responsibility programs have now become corporate social justice with a focus on DEI. I guess my thing is, with so many people pledging money and so many corporations saying they're going to allocate funding, 
does it really happen? And when the funding comes, does it really work? And are people clawing at the appropriation of the funding? Uh, and it doesn't really bring about diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think you have some uh, touch points with that at Bluffton, haven't you? Yes, it, it really doesn't make a difference. Because all they're going to do is hire a temporary person to come in. Because they wouldn't let me do tenure track because I wasn't meant that. And so their religion shielded them from being diverse as an institution. Uh, and that, and that's, that, that was the sad part. Uh, another sad part of, of trying to establish this notion of diversity was that uh, we would have speakers come in, and they would, they would love to bring up. I brought Cornell West in. I brought in uh, George Cummings. I brought in J.R. Smith. Um, but they were willing to do that because it was temporary. It was called temporary diversity. And they would feel guilty for an hour and they would go back to business as usual. So that makes me wonder. And so, I'm uh, sorry, go ahead. I, so I wonder whether or not the money is just lip service. Another rhetorical device to, to appease us by giving us a small representation thing that that represents the whole. And it does. Yeah, because it makes me think that if. I'm assuming that there was some type of grant, um, you know, expecting some type of funding was supporting that work. It was oh, a Lily Grant, yes. It was a grant. Then I'm imagining that there's some type of outcomes, right, that they were expecting at the time. They had to expect something to, to fund it. And I guess that's what I'm wondering. You know, and you said something to me that's just honestly overwhelming, that people are expecting in some context, at least the one you're speaking of, expect diversity, equity, inclusion, but at the same time, really don't want it. You know, they're facilitating a program. The initiative is on the branding documents. There's continuity throughout the messaging of the university, higher ed that's in the corporate context. But when people really drill down, I think you get to the heart of the matter. It has to be more than temporary. It's not a one-off. It has to be a sustained conversation. And I, I think we can't do that without being connected to the larger conversation. I think the larger conversation for me is how do you connect people who think they're diverse, but they're not, and people who think they are inclusive, but their practice are not? What type of, what can you do to help them see the lived experience of others? I think that's the issue, that unless people get outside their own circles and unless, whether it be a corporate environment, whether it be an organization, it could be a church, it could be a nonprofit, really doesn't matter. If you don't have context of how other people live, gather, and belong, I think it could be detrimental to a so-called viewpoint of what diversity or even inclusion is. What, what do you think about that? Well, well there, there, there are two things I want to raise. One way we did it was we had a committee that we formed was called the Damascus the Damascus okay. Road On that committee, uh, our sole task was to get faculty, staff, and students over a weekend to take uh -huh. this training. And the goal was to have everyone take the training. And I think that was a it was a great success. I, I still experienced trauma from that experience. Oh, let wow. me let me explain. Yeah, that explain that. Uh, during a, a portion of the training, uh, because there was not many African-American students and staff, 
They had African-American students or staff or faculty sit at the head of the table, and then whites would sit around the table. But they, the African-Americans could not speak in this session. And we sat there and listened to them describe all of the things that they benefit from as a result of their white privilege. Oh my goodness. White skin. And so I had to... That all reminds uh, me of a part of my research where um, I reference uh, Vincent Winbush and one of the notes uh, about uh, Jim Tyler's poem about a buzzard that uh, is said to be not metaphysical in the way that they can interpret or understand oneself. And what I hear you saying, I'm trying to create some tension. What I hear you saying, you've got people in a room assigning a work, giving you responsibility, but at the same time, you are providing a lived experience that is not their own, trying to help nurture it and will steward them through possible ways of understanding how people gather. But at the same time, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but it's what I'm hearing is that you have people who are trying to tell you more about yourself than what you think they think you know. Exactly. And uh, you just hit it right on the head. Because my voice, or the voice of people of color on the campus, did not matter. Oh, my goodness. In fact, the, the, you know, uh, to, really, to really peel back the yeah. experience before I go to the second point, uh, I was challenged and attacked on a number of cases, but they wouldn't, they were never males. They would always send a female to confront me. For example, when I said that uh, the religious studies faculty is discriminating against me, religious studies faculty, males never came to me. They sent females. And it got so tense that I would bring my uh, my director over the, over the Lily Grant into my office so that he could be a part of the conversation. What turns out, after the conversation, the report that he gave to the to the president didn't match what actually happened to me. And his version was taken over mine because he was an historian. Oh my goodness. I mean, it's like, even though I'm a biblical scholar, my voice did not matter. And that's, and that's and so, so you're not, it's not just about having a mixture you know, of folk who are diverse. But it's also, you got to also look at how their voices being, uh, their concerns being addressed. Yeah, because what I hear you saying is... And for the most part, they only they only address temporarily until the dust settles. Then when the dust settles, it's back to business as usual. And that's the problem I have with this notion of diversity. You got to appeal back just from the faces and, and, and the culture to actually see the kind of roles that they're actually playing in institution. Like here I am, well-trained, you know, had a lot of experience, a lot of publications. They would not allow me to be a permanent part of the faculty. I would only be temporary. And so because of that, you know, the students felt like they didn't have a voice because they had nobody in the faculty represent. And so wow. when you peel back diversity issues, you got to peel back all the way down to the ground floor, of the, the ground level, to see how seriously 
are people's voices, people's positions, and people's professions are taken by the institution. Yeah, and I think you raised the point. And oftentimes, not taken seriously at all. Let, let me go to the second, this second instance, aside from the Damascus okay. Road Committee, which was very much a success. The second uh, thing we did was during the summers, the Living Grant provided funds for the faculty, staff, and students to go out do what they call cultural cultural immersion. They would go to cultural cultural festivals by Hispanics, Native Americans, and other people of African Americans, and they would. This would be the first time that they ever attended it. And now they have that experience. They're less likely to judge. They're less likely to not hear. So the more they become diverse the more diversity takes root in the institution itself. Without the faculty, staff, and students thinking that diversity is a mainstream issue, not a periphery issue, then I think diversity would be something that would be embraced in, in a true sense, not just total sense. Yeah, and this, and this show uh, honors and it owns it. Um, not only are we talking to you, um, African-American male, uh, higher education, very well-established, published, uh, so many different designations and degrees. But we're also uh, talking to my PhD supervisor, whom you know, uh, who is non-black, yes. white male, uh, yes. and highly yes. respected yes. in the field and the industry. So we're going to look at both perspectives. We're not just, you know, leveraging this to a point where uh, it's only one side. We want to look at all sides. The fact of the matter is, you got to ask the question, is it possible to really consider how someone feels in those contexts of diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion? Because what I heard you say, and you correct me if I'm wrong, is that they wanted you to practice diversity, but they also wanted you to erase difference at the same time. I think, I think the challenge yes. is is that we have to learn how, and perhaps that's what it is, a, a path of learning how to experience diversity without the erasure of difference. It's a dangerous task if it's not managed properly, but it's got to be something that's done. Yes, you can have a diverse group, and sure, you can have an inclusive setting, and indeed, you can make someone feel like contexts are equitable by resources and what you give someone in terms of learning and sharing and opportunities of immersion. Fact of the matter is, we've got to capture what the wider issue is, and you've gotten to the heart of it. You have people who are really thoughtful about diversity, equity, inclusion, but they're not as thoughtful about the wider impact. There's no way to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, the church, a nonprofit, in your local setting where you have fun and where you play cards, you've got to peel back the layers. What's the layer? The layer is dealing with race in America. Listen, hold on. We'll be right back because we're going to peel the layers back on this conversation. And we're going to see what impact critical race theory, understandings of white privilege, and perhaps what does white supremacy have to do with our ability to really have an authentic, meaningful diversity, equity, and inclusion program. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Tell someone. Let them know that DEI Today is on, and we'll see you in a moment. Listen, our last conversation, uh, we were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the challenges 
about trying to implement something like that without being connected to the wider conversation that's happening in our culture, that's in our communities, and that's trending on our news feeds. It's impossible to not peel back those layers and to be able to see what really is driving those initiatives that are happening. Yes, corporations have pledged money for employee resource groups and they want to facilitate conversation. But let's be honest. Let's be clear. Unless we really talk about what's behind the curtain, it's hard to really have an authentic dialogue about what it takes for employee resource groups, DEI initiatives, to really have meaning. Listen, today, right now, the continuation of this moment, we're talking about, don't get mad, critical race theory, white privilege, white supremacy, and conversations that I think are critical, just as critical as DEI, but just as explosive. So let me set it up, and then I'll let Dr. George uh, bring his expertise to this. In my view, Critical race theory cannot be discussed without looping in the concepts of white privilege and white supremacy. In any case, let's light the fuse, right? If we're here, let's do it. And implode the misunderstandings and the misinformation. But let's be clear. Critical race theory is an attempt to rearrange historical facts as they should be to avoid the imposition of shame and guilt on a new generation of Americans, and particularly white Americans. Permit me to also level set a critique on black communities. Take pride in your own history, your culture. Don't let someone else in an employee resource group or something similar share your ancestral or genealogical traditions that shape who you are in yourself. Do that for yourself. Don't let someone else do that. I think those were the misunderstandings come. That's where the misinformation lies. In order to get Really, at a true, authentic DEI program, we've got to peel back the issue of what it means to deal with critical race theory and those conversations in our community. So let's just get into it. Dr. George, I'm going to let you just have that. Help me understand the difficulties of the critical race concept. Help me understand from your view whether they are different from mine or not. Help me understand, how is it possible to have a conversation about critical race theory without equally talking about white privilege or even white supremacy? What's your viewpoint on it? Well, that's a wonderful question. I've been waiting for somebody to ask me that question since we've been having this debate. <laughs> Derek Bell, who's the, uh, I, I call it the father of critical race theory, brilliant mind. Okay. His first book that I read was entitled Faces at the Bottom of the Whip. In there, he discusses, discusses and defines the notion that our society is uh, indelibly, permanently infected with this notion of race, and it can never be eradicated. Never, never be eradicated. And so, for the work that you're doing, here's one incentive. If you don't if you can't eradicate racism, eventually things are going to come to a head. And not just during, during the death of, of, a, of a person of color. It's going to also come to a head simply because you cannot keep a people docked down for so long and keep treating them as second-class citizens when they're full of Americans. So 
you cannot have discussion of critical race theory without having the discussion of, of white supremacy. I like the term white, white supremacy because it's not as slippery as racism. Many folk have found okay, ways to that. What do you mean by that? I'm sorry. What do you mean it's not as slippery as racism? Unpack that for well, us. Well, the, the very people that created this notion of race and racism are the, are the strongest deniers of it. And every time it comes up, they find a way to deconstruct it based upon the information okay. that we give them. People of color give them. So they use our own definitions back at us. And so because it's, it's been around for since biblical times, but more specifically here in America, it, it was it was present in 1619. And so this concept of racism, white folk have found a way to deconstruct that term so that it has absolutely no meaning. It's like saying to a person, I love you, but you've said it a thousand times, and so now this lost its meaning, has leaks everywhere, leaks in every direction. So that's what racism. White supremacy is kind of hard to okay. muddy that up. It means whites feel that they are superior to blacks or other people of color. But it doesn't just mean that they're superior. It means that the people of color or blacks are inferior. And so uh, as long as the dominant mainstream class is in power, they're okay with that because they that way they're empowered, therefore they have no equals, which you, which you referred to earlier. But I think that ultimately uh, critical race theory, which is not really something that's taught in public schools, it's taught in law schools. It's, 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 it's an elective within law school. And so what Derek Bell did from a legal sense, to use critical race theory to look at laws and determine how they were either just or unjust or biased towards people of color, okay? And so the fear is, is that one day the minority is going to become the majority. And the majority now feels that when the minority becomes the majority, they're going to do them the same way that they were treated. But I would beg to differ because our hearts are not like, we're not vengeful people. In fact, African Americans, for the most part, are very peaceful people. But they they have been castigated and criminalized from birth. And so that's why you see the kind of actions uh, through these biased things of police officers treating them the way they treat them because automatically they, they, they become judge and jury because they are automatically criminals. And this, this, this applies not only to those who are on the streets, but it also applies to those who are in the academy. No matter how many degrees you have, you're still, you're still black. And there's still a contempt against you. Uh, I think one time in one of our conversations, we talked about the definition of France Fanon in the book called Race, uh, uh, Theories of Race and Racism, where he says that race racism is the uh, unreasoned hatred of whites against wow. blacks. It's a contempt of whites against blacks, regardless of their educational attainment, regardless of their financial attainments. There's still this unreasoned hatred. In other words, they hate people of color or blacks and don't even know why. 
<laughs> All right. So to build that and to merge it with our prior conversation about just DEI and understanding and the value of it and higher ed or wherever else, what I'm hearing you say is, and I think I align with it, is that you've got to have, got to have an understanding of what's happening broadly outside of workplace to really make a meaningful discussion possible in the workplace because if you forsake uh, at a corporation that's conservative and they got values that align with a particular political party and you're trying to infuse an employee resource group but you have these type of sentiments either people who have uh, who align with sentiments that uh, are supporting what you call white supremacy and how you define it or you have people who are of color who are equally having reactions to what's happening and perhaps their prejudiced views. Whenever you have that happening in any context, it will be volatile. So to me, for a corporation, nonprofit church, whoever it is, not to be having these conversations, at some point, you said it, there's going to be an explosion. And rather than an explosion, I'd rather have an implosion. I'd rather set the charges. (laughs) I think to your point, We've got to set the charges where these conversations are and where they should lie so that we can control the collateral damage. I think that's the issue. And I, the collateral damage that I heard you say is that people will look at me. I have to admit, I have to share my own story. That's all I have, so please forgive me. Is that I work out every morning. I go to Kroger as soon as I'm finished. I get my items for the day, and I check out in line. Well, almost every day, uh, there are some exceptions, but most days I'm either questioned about whether I've gotten all the items out of my cart and I have paid for them, or I'm standing in line and um, older white persons will, she'll clench her purse and hold it close and tight. I think those type of sentiments still exist, but at the same time, we've got to have these kind of conversations because not everyone thinks like that. Not everyone is exposed to that in a way where it's derogatory or where it's debilitating. Some people authentically embrace other people and they do all they can to engage in the lived experience of others without the negativity. Now, some don't want to disengage from white privilege because, to be honest, I wouldn't either. I don't want to be followed in a store and shopping at Macy's and someone following me around all the time without asking me, do I need help? Who wants to give up the opportunity to walk free, right? But at the same time, I think there are people who recognize that that is happening. They do want to be involved in the conversation. They want to know how to get past it. But I don't think they know how. And the question I have, does he bridge all this stuff together, right? Civil rights, DEI initiatives, is there a connection? Uh, now I know DEI generally has its place in you know corporate settings, workplace environments, but let's be real. Does DEI in any way have a connection point in your view to civil rights? And if so, what's the connection? And perhaps maybe where did MLK land on all this stuff? <laughs> Where did that fit into his conversations? Can you help me? Sure. You know, uh, I'm glad you raised that question. Um, I hope that DEI 
doesn't make the same mistake that the civil rights movement made. The civil mm. rights movement thought that they could legislate us. Wow. But they all they did was legislate laws that allow African Americans to have access to public facilities. I've never heard that before. Say that, say that again for the audience. That is, that's worth listening to. Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big difference between, uh, you know, working externally on a person. That's what civil rights did. It, it got rid of the laws that kept African Americans being uh, integrated with the, the larger society. Mm. But it didn't change the hearts of the ones that control society. And that's why I think Ooh. moving forward, DEI as well mm. as the civil rights era as well as those concurrently activists, we gotta stop looking at external realities and start looking within. We gotta do what I call an inward journey. To see because mm. see, you know, here's the thing about being authentic or a true a true self or a true soul. Hatred cannot exist or coexist in an atmosphere of love. In other words, I'm not talking about the person that's doing the marching or the protesting. I'm talking about the people who 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 don't look like us, who are white. That they have to do some soul searching. How can you say, on the one hand, that you love God, you love Jesus? and your brother as yourself. But yet at the same time, harbor hatred in your heart. There's something wrong with that type of quote-unquote Christianity or that quote-unquote religion. And so... Well, it sounds... It, I'm sorry, it sounds compartmentalized. Like, it's possible for one to be Christian but at the same time have competing views that we would see that allow them to be adversarial for back of a lap for better terms. <laughs> and, 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 that, that, that just doesn't make sense. And, and that's what's wrong. See, we use the word Christian, but just like we talked earlier about, you know, the slipperiness of racism, Christianity and Christians have taken on that same character. That you could be a Christian and support, you know, the big lie. Or you could be a Christian and support someone who is, you know, the father of lies, <laughs> it's, but but we we got to reclaim our, our our authentic Christianity, and we gotta we gotta redefine what it means to be an authentic Christian, and that is it's not so external dogma, it's not doctrine, it's not uh, it's not the facility that you worship in. Those external realities doesn't have anything to do with the price of. Uh, bread in China. But on the inside, you know, this is what Howard Thurman talked about. He talked about creating a common ground for all faiths and all peoples. The only way you're going to do that is you can't look at our external realities. We are so different. Diversity brings a lot of different things to the table. We are so different externally, but we're so much sustained internally. And I think that's the direction that, you know, if I was to do a program today, I wouldn't try to do all these external programs, get to go to cultural festivals and what have you. That would be necessary. But I think more importantly okay. is to have them do an inward journey. 
and to and to look at their authentic self, the original soul, not not something that was conditioned over the years, or conditioned in the home, conditioned you know, in these little enclaves. But I think it's important to do some soul searching. Uh, now I know for some the moral argument is not going to work because there's no morality in it at all. But for those that claim to be Christian, they need to be challenged. You cannot claim to be. I almost feel like uh, I almost feel like you're advocating for, in some way, some type of extraction where you can participate but also be extracted at the same time. That I can be an African American male. Uh, a descendant of slaves uh, but at the same time can participate and share community with someone who's not like the, the other and instead of having these polarized views of them and us we become neighbors and friends and I think to your point corporations have these dialogues on emotional intelligence but what I heard you just say is that there has to, I don't know how to frame it. Uh, I don't know what to call it. But that inward journey, I think that might be something that needs to be at the central point of DEI conversations. If you had to take one of Thurman's thoughts, and I believe he, if I'm not mistaken, was a key influencer with King behind the scenes. If you had to take one of his thoughts to try to pivot or turn this conversation, and oh, I show hate for it again, uh, but time is drawing me up high on this, but if we had to point this conversation with one of those thoughts that Thurman had to be able to help us understand how DEI is important and then how you have to peel back the layers, what would Thurman say in your words? And based on the big research project you're doing now, what would you what would he have to say? So thank you, Ask, because I think this is important not just for the larger conversation, but it's also important for you and I. In that Okay. If you're going to embark upon a challenge to get rid of racism, the systemic racism, uh, and white supremacy, then you got to have resolve. You have to have resilience. It cannot come from your head. It has to come from your heart. It has to come from within. And this is how you sustain yourself through the dirt. You got to. You got to take care of your soul. You got to soul things because you're going to be challenged from every single direction. And so with Howard, with Howard, Howard was uh, Dr. King's spiritual advisor, but not just Dr. King's spiritual advisor. He was a, a spiritual advisor for many people in the civil rights era. And what Howard was trying to advocate was that takes a certain kind of person who, who knows or who's in touch with the authentic self to go out in March and get bit, bitten by dogs, blown down by you know, fire hydrants or killed by police officers, or shot by police officers. It takes a certain kind of individual to do that. But it's that, oh, that individual must be on that inward journey, that, that journey into the depth of their souls, so that they, when they go forth, they will not have anything on their conscience, they will not have trouble thoughts, they will be simply trying to engage a community that they want to be a part of, that they are a part of. See, blacks have never had a problem becoming a part of mainstream. It's always been mainstream having a problem becoming a part of the African American soul. What a powerful, what a powerful expression. Listen, I tell you, these conversations 
have been powerful. Uh, we've learned today, without question, that DEI conversations, diversity, equity, inclusion, are not a one-off, not a one-and-done. It's an ongoing task. And your comment about not legislating love, oh, my Lord, it's so powerful. I hope on one hand that our talk today has caused some discomfort. On the other hand, perhaps this dialogue will move others to action. In any case, I'm so glad that you took part in this meaningful conversation. So many controversial issues. Yes, the dialogue was explosive, but I really believe there's a knowledge transfer that will allow you to leave with excellence and integrity. Listen, we can't have a guest like this without knowing how to connect, how to take part of the many resources he has, the many things he does. I'm telling you, he's an excellent publisher, editor, copy editor, and even ghostwriter if you need one. Uh, Larry, tell us, if our audience wants to connect with you, how can they do that? How can they take part in what you're doing, the work you're involved in, kind of help us understand how they can connect with you? I think the best way to connect with me is on my Facebook page. I just do a right. search for George Educational Consulting Services Incorporated, and my page will pop up. Uh, another way is to connect with LinkedIn, which I, you know, I check on a daily basis and do a lot of my marketing for my publishing business uh, to people that have doctorates and masters within the uh, LinkedIn platform. So those are the two best ways. Awesome. And listen, you might be an academic, you might be an uh, armchair uh, person who is informed about many different issues, and you say, I've got a lot of thoughts, a lot of situations that I have comment about, but I just don't know how to frame those conversations or get those conversations out of my head and my hand. Listen, Larry is the person. Uh, he'll walk with you through your process. He'll work with you on Zoom. He'll listen to the idea that you have. He'll even provide you some context to give you some pointers and guide signposts. I'm telling you, you want to connect to Larry George. He has a way of pulling and extracting out of you what authentically is your gift, your instinct. I'm telling you, will be enhanced as a result of your connection with him. Listen, I hope you've enjoyed this segment today. I really believe that this engaging conversation will be impactful to you. Remember, click the subscribe button right below this video. It helps us keep videos like this going. We really hope you had a great time. We look forward to continued conversations. And Larry, you have to come back. Will you come back Absolutely. to share with Absolutely. us? Absolutely. I think we just scratched There it is. <laughs> <laughs> We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of DEI Today. We'll see you soon.